Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. So, football is coming home. Or is it? Might it be going to Rome? Dominic Sambrook with me. A, a, a night of titanic passion and drama last night as the England football team, following in the footsteps of their Anglo-Saxon forebears who won at the battles of Eddington, of Tettenhall, of Brunenburg, smashed the Danish shield wall. Yes, uh, it wasn't quite the smashing of the shield wall that you might have hoped for, was it? it no, was I'm grotesquely exaggerating. It was, it was tense and the Danes were, I mean, they could claim they were a little bit unlucky. Um, but it was, apart from the shining of laser pens and so on, which... Um, <laughs> the, pen probably, of God, the laser pen of God. Yeah, which I think the Anglo-Saxons <laughs> might have frowned upon. Um, I, I thought, you know, the Danes bowed out very gallantly. As I thought, as I hoped they would. Uh, we know. love the Danes. So the Danes are kind of our kin, aren't they? They're our, they're our, um, they're our northern brethren. So this time is the, the final is going to be very different because the Italians are their people against whom we've defined ourselves, but in completely different ways. There are cultural opposites in various ways. Uh, I mean, we do have a really fascinating intertwined history, but they are the kind of stereotype, aren't they? The Mediterranean non-Britons, if you like, but. Looking at it in, in the broadest possible span, um, I mean, I think you can make the case for saying that of all Europe's countries, perhaps none of them has had a, a profounder influence than on Italy. our history than Italy. I think we've said that about every country. No, with I, the possible think, I don't exception think we have. Of Ukraine. I, no, no, I think I think we said that the rivalry between England and Denmark was the oldest, which I, I think is true. But I think that the influence that Italy has had in various manifestations and in various ways i mean has has been i mean it's kind of beyond profound and the idea that we can sum it all up in, in okay what 40 50 minutes is ludicrous yeah. but we should probably crack on shouldn't we? yeah if you're going to go back beyond the creation of italy as a country then of course that's true especially well, if you go back to one of your specialisms which is where i imagine you're going to kick off well it is because i thought we really need to define italy in england so um Italy actually is much older than the, the founding of the you know, Italian Italian kingdom, king, Italian kingdom in the nineteenth century, because um, absolutely the Romans had a sense of of Italy as a coherent identity. Certainly by the sec- early second century BC, possibly before that, yeah. um, and actually the, the the beginning of the first century BC, when the um, the various Italian peoples and cities rebel against Rome, they mint coins with the name Italia on it. And they proclaim a kind of a, a unitary Italy in opposition to Roman rule. So, um, you know, that's a kind of precursor for what happens in the 19th century that I yeah. think makes it legitimate to talk about Italy. Even though Italy then kind of went underground for so many centuries between those two points. Yes, but but um, the, the, the Romans have a, a sense of themselves as Italian. Okay. Certainly. 
and and so I think it's telling that um, the first description of what will in long in, in, in due course become England is from Italian. It's from Julius Caesar, who uh, leads expeditions against Britain in 55 BC, 54 BC, yeah. writes it up in massive self-promoting <laughs> commentaries, yes. um, self-aggrandizing the kind of thing that you would never do, Dominic. And um, <laughs> thank you, Tom. <laughs> Uh, and obviously the Romans then invade uh, permanently in 43 AD and um, uh, Britain becomes part of the Roman Empire um, yeah. for kind of four centuries. The Romans then withdraw and the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, according to uh, later tradition, then invade and seize what had been the Roman province of Britannia. And this in due course becomes England. So when we're talking about England against Italy, Really, I think we need to start looking at the Anglo-Saxons rather so than, say, with Caraticus or Boudicca. Or, so you're not including, if this was Wales v Italy, which did happen earlier in the tournament, you would have gone in with Boudicca and Caraticus and so on, but you're disbarring them for the purposes of this podcast. I, I think so. There are arguments. There are scholars who argue that um, a, a form of Proto-English was spoken in the eastern half of Britain. Really? And there's an argument that Boudicca is actually a, a pun. So in uh, Celtic languages, it, it's, it means victory, Victoria. So that's why you get the statue of Boudicca outside Houses of Parliament. Um, suppose there was a kind of proto-English, a kind of Germanic language. It's possible that, say, Wicca, as in you know, Wicca now, the, the religion, means yeah. a woman. And um, it's possible that there's an illusion there that, that it, it means a, a woman who's been attacked or a woman who's been raped, which, of course, Boudicca was and precipitates the rebellion. So perhaps there is there are kind of pockets of proto-English being spoken, but it's a highly controversial opinion, not widely accepted and not one that I think we should be going into All now. Right. This is way yeah. too complicated. I can see the rabbit hole beckoning. But what, what I would say is that for the Anglo-Saxons, Rome is kind of central to their imagination. It's kind yeah. of almost the capital of, the, of their imaginings. Uh, and they have a very, very kind of profound emotional, spiritual relationship to the idea of Rome. Yes. That, that I think is, you know, basically provides the kind of seedbed from which English attitudes to, to Italy generally come from. So English kings, the very first English kings or the kings of the people we recognise as the English, did they see themselves, do you think, as the heirs to the Roman emperors? Minting coins and, and living maybe in the, I mean, the last kingdom of Bernard Cornwell series, they, their, their palaces are kind of in the ruins of Roman villas and things. Is that, is that do you think, how they saw themselves? I, th I, think, I, I think they have a sense of themselves as peripheral to Rome. Yeah. So in that sense, they still see themselves kind of, it's kind of a colonial relationship to the, to the metropolis. Because if you, if you look at the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is this kind of year by year account of history, it begins with Julius Caesar coming to Britain. And so in a sense, the Anglo-Saxons are, um, identifying the beginnings of their history with Rome's first contact with the island in which they will come to live. Yeah. So that's kind of defining themselves through Rome. Uh, and again, if you look at Bede, who is the first great historian of England. So much of our information about Anglo-Saxon England and its beginnings comes from Bede. And he, his, his kind of opening, he, he describes Britain, which was once called Albion, he says, is an island in the ocean and it lies to the northwest. And what's fascinating about that is that Bede is situating Britain relative to Rome. Right. So he's taking on a Roman perspective. Yes. So in that yeah. sense, there's still a kind of a hint of the... The colonised to it. Yeah, Rome is the centre of the world. Rome is and, the and Britain of the world. is on the at the edge. Okay, I buy that. I completely buy that. I uh, mean, presumably uh, all European peoples 
except the sort of Scandinavians, certainly all Western European peoples, but in the, well, people used to call the Dark Ages, define themselves that way, right? Rome used to be the centre and it still is. But there's, there's a sense also, I think, I mean, you asked about kings. So even before England gets converted to the Roman form of Christianity, um, there's a group of, of kings in the, um, in East Anglia, probably the guys who who, um, who, who bury the um, the ship at Sutton Hoo, called the Wolfingas. Right. And scholars have, have argued that the name wolf that's embedded in that may well part of, put it on their coins that make great riffs about the wolf. Of course, the wolf suckles Romulus and Remus. Yes. So perhaps that's a part of it. Certainly in their genealogy, they like, like all the Anglo-Saxon kings, they trace it back to Woden, the king of the gods. But they distinctively say that the son of Woden was Caesar and therefore they are descended from Caesar. And this is um, a, a, a tradition. This, um, you, you know, you ask, do, do the Anglo-Saxon kings kind of ape the model of imperial rule? They, they absolutely do. Yeah. Um, so the story is told of Alfred. He he definitely goes to Rome on pilgrimage once, but he's he's supposed also to have gone um, a, a, as a boy and to have been um, blessed by the Pope and to have been anointed by him rather as Charlemagne did. I mean, this is most unlikely to have happened because there was no prospect at that point that Alfred was going to become king. But yeah. it's a story that matters and it gets told in due course. Um, Athelstan, um, Alfred's grandson, he is the first king of the whole of England and he summons kings from across the north of Britain so those stretches of, of Britain that the Romans had never conquered kings of Scots kings from the Strathclyde and he summons them to a place called Amont in in Cumbria and what's significant about that place is that there's a Roman fortress there so there's a right. symbol of Roman power and Athelstan then he holds these kind of great durbars in Roman cities presumably in the kind of amphitheaters that are still functional and which established the prototype for Wembley so, <laughs> very good you know, yeah. it's where it all begins yeah um and edgar his who, who we mentioned in the um the podcast about the, in, in against denmark um he has this very imperial coronation and where does he choose to have it in bath which oh, is full the, of roman buildings the most yeah. extravagantly yeah, yeah the most extravagantly um imperial city in uh in britain so i think that that is absolutely a part of it that there's a kind of a, a, a cultural cringe before the idea of okay. the Roman Empire and a desire to emulate it. So this is then, a very good start for Italy in this podcast. It's, it's looking good. So that's good. So so we're, uh, yes, so the kind of intimidating presence of the, of, of the Italian team, we're flinching before it. But yeah. there's also stuff that we can learn because, of course, Rome is not significant only as an imperial capital, as was, but as the city of the popes. Yes. I thought we'd get to the popes. The place where... Peter and Paul are martyred, where the Bishop of Rome has his has his bishopric. Um, and it's the Bishop of Rome who sends missionaries to convert the pagan Anglo-Saxons. Uh, and the guy who does that is Gregory the Great, yeah. who is a massive punster. A punster? He's a punster. He loves his puns. <laughs> right. So it's a famous story that he goes out into the slave market in Rome and he sees these blonde boys, blonde children, who've come from um, a kingdom called Deira, part of Northumbria in, in northern England. And he asks who they are, and he's told that they are Angles, Angli. And he says, non-Angli, said Angeli, not Angles, but angels. And everyone collapses into laughter. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when he asks where they come from, he's told Deira. He says, ah, Deira, which means from anger. I have been called to rescue them from the anger of Satan. Oh, my word. Wow. So, I mean, 
stream of terrible jokes. Yes. So this is like some sort of yes, yeah, some sort of foreign football association in the nineteen nineties <laughs> saying we'll send you some coaches to break your long yes. ball game exactly. and teach you how to play proper football. Exactly. We'll send you Claudio exactly. Ranieri and Gianluca Vialli and yeah. so on. It's, it, it, exactly. <laughs> well, actually, and and the English end up. Uh, they they take Gregory as their celestial patron. So they imagine that at the end of days, Gregory will plead their case before the throne of God. Right. But they also, they set up a kind of training school in Rome. So they set up a, a hostel where they can all, where pilgrims can stay. It, it, it actually preserves a trace in the, in the street plan of Rome to this day, because they, they call it a burr. Oh, right. After Alfred's burrs. After Alfred's burrs. And it's, so um, the, uh, the 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 Burgo um, Santo Spirito, which is the kind of the road that leads from the Tiber up to um, the piazza in front of St Peter's, yeah, um, that preserves you know that derives from the Burg, which was there because that's that's where it stood. Very nice. But obviously the Pope, he goes on to be you know public enemy number one for generations of English men and women, doesn't he? I mean, even preceding the Reformation, there was a bad blood between the papacy, certainly in the, and the English crown, right? Well, in the Anglo-Saxon period. Uh, this sense that the, the the Pope is their kind of godfather, I yeah. think, is is the godfather. No one has a, very nice. <laughs> no one has no one has an issue, you know, in every sense of the word. No one yeah. no one has an issue issue with that. Gregory the Seventh, the the kind of great reforming Pope of the eleventh century, he sends, as we mentioned in our episode on ten sixty six, he sends a banner to William the Conqueror, yes, kind of wishing him good luck. Yeah, uh, and the reason that Gregory the Seventh is so revolutionary a pope is that essentially he is the guy who pushes the idea that the pope should be superior to all earthly kings, in a way that he hadn't been before. Yeah, uh, and that of course is what then generates the sense of tension. So you get it with Henry the Second after he's um, held responsible for the murder of Thomas Becket. Yeah, that that essentially has to be kind of whipped through the streets of Canterbury to pay penance, and then of course in the reign of John, which we talked about in our episode of Magna Carta. Um, John basically kind of has a massive bust up with Innocent III, who is a ferociously powerful and authoritarian pope. Um, and John is broken by it and ends up offering England as a, a papal fiefdom. He holds it in trust from the pope. Um, and I think that probably does kind of establish a, a slight legacy of yeah. tension. So so during all that period, I mean, the Italian, the 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 English, as it were, the, the the whipping boys is too strong, but we're definitely in a sort of, to borrow your phrase from the beginning, there's an element of cultural cringe, right? I think that so. The, that the, the Rome is where it is. The papacy is the sort of, you know, God's, the Pope is God's vicar on earth. And yeah. English kings sort of basically, you know, they can try to weasel their way out as John did, or as Henry II you know, by killing the Archbishop of Canterbury. But basically the Pope is, is the, is the, the Pope is the power broker. Is the, he's the dominant figure in that relationship? Yeah, it's 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 the centre. I mean, it's the great place of pilgrimage. Um, Jerusalem is under Muslim rule. Yeah. Um, so it's too far. Um, but but Rome is, you know, for most of the Middle Ages, apart from when the popes go to Avignon, is the that's the that's the kind of the great court, and it's an earthly as well as a spiritual power. So um, absolutely. Um, England has a kind of peripheral relationship to it. And on top of that, of course, and, uh, Italy is also a cultural and an economic powerhouse, increasingly. Yeah, I was going to ask as the about, middle, about the, as cultural, the Middle Ages. The progress. cultural relationship. So people like, um, let's say, Chaucer. I mean, Chaucer must have a sense of Italian culture and, and all that stuff, does he? Absolutely. Well, Chaucer, so, so, and it's it's kind of interwoven with the cultural, with sorry, with the economic power 
because the reason that Chaucer goes to Italy is to negotiate trade deals over wool. Um, he wants to improve trade deals, cutting out middlemen, so that yeah. um, you know this this boosts trade and boosts the amount of money that goes directly into English coffers rather than to middlemen in in the lowlands. So Chaucer goes to Genoa. He then goes on to Florence. Um, and of course, in Florence, he may well have met Boccaccio, who is yeah. the um, author of the, the Cameron. The, yes, so this kind of great series of interlinked tales, which almost you know, provides a, a model for the Canterbury Tales. And he may have seen Giotto, Giotto's paintings. So mm. he's Chaucer is a, a very European figure and hugely influenced by kind of you know he had, Italian culture is massively significant for him, as it is basically for every cutting-edge English writer, artist. Italy is the, is the cultural centre. Yeah. But there's also that sense, you know, the, he's going there because Italy is, is incredibly rich. Uh, and again, England is kind of economically subordinate. I mean, not entirely. So, so Edward, so, so you, you start to get banks in Italy, these banking families. Yeah. So Edward I borrows obscene amounts from a banking family in Lucca. Um, and then there's a war between England and France. There's, there's a kind of snarl up. There's a credit crunch. Edward needs money from this banking family. He demands it. They can't pay it because they don't have access to, to ready cash. So Edward then appropriates all their belongings in England. It's poor form, isn't it? It's very poor form. It kind of destroys this bank. <laughs> Right. But it also cripples England's economy because well, from that point on, Edward can't borrow. Self-destructive, completely self-destructive yes. behaviour. Yes. And over the course of the 14th century, the English kings have keep kind of having to, to agree ever more humiliating terms and then get driven to default. And basically, England in the 14th century, I mean, it's kind of, it's the Argentina of, of right. the European economy. Yeah. It's kind of apologies to our Argentine listeners yes. there, <laughs> but it's end. Of, you know, it's it's a kind. You know, it has a third world relationship to the IMF. Yeah, it's it's that it's that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think you know, Eng- England is. It, it's it, in this episode. It's very much a game of two halves, and the first half, England is kind of losing six nil. Right. Oh, that's I very think. disappointing. What about the Lombard? Where, where do the Lombards come in, Tom? Are we in uh, Lombard Street and Lombard Bankers? Is that this? Yeah, stage so, or is so that Lombard, later? Lombard Street is the kind of the main. I mean, it's called the Wall Street of Love London, isn't it? It's kind of the great concentration of banks now running yeah. from, from Bank Tube Station, um, and it's named after goldsmiths from Lombardy. Um, okay, and again, it was it's Edward the First. He gives these goldsmiths from Lombardy a, a plot of land, and that's what they then give their name to what becomes Lombard Street. Um, so again, you see that again, a bit like a kind of um, a third world economy wanting to attract inward investment, or indeed Britain now actually yeah. wanting to attract inward investment. Um, you're kind of you, you, you know you're in an inferior position to those who are po- able to hand out um, yeah. the, the economic patronage. Um, so again, that's a kind of another index. You, you're not getting um, Italian cities kind of giving plots of land to English merchants. Because they, they don't need it. If you're a sort of very bright, successful Italian, I mean, England is not really the place you'd move to, right? I mean, I know Italians do. So John Cabot, the explorer, was originally, I don't know, what was he, Giovanni Caboto or something like that, wasn't he? I, I can't, I've probably got that completely wrong, but I think it's something along those lines. But by and large, an ambitious young Italian, if you're from a banking family or, you know, you're you want to go out and seek your fortune in the world. England is not the obvious destination because it's a bit of a backwater. I mean, your obvious destination is presumably 
France or, or yeah. you know, Castile or somewhere. I think that's true. I mean, you know, obviously that you do famously you get the Venetian ambassadors whose um accounts of Yeah, they're always writing really you know, the murderous doings in, in England is yeah. you know, incredibly useful source. Um but it is a bit like you know, again a, a kind of IMF official writing reports from a, a war torn yeah, from dictatorship or something. From La Paz or something. <laughs> yes, a bit a bit like that, I think. Um and then of course the the relationship becomes massively complicated in the 16th century with the Reformation. When... Yes, because obviously the popes are all Italian at this stage, right? The pope, yeah. uh, that, that, that's right, isn't it? So all yeah. the popes that Henry VIII falls out with, they are Italians. And Rome itself, I've always wondered whether that point you made earlier about the, 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 the sort of the, the map that people have, whether that plays a part in the Reformation imagination. So Rome has always been the centre of the world. And when Henry says, you know, this realm of ours is an empire and, you know, basically sod the Pope and, and all his cardinals, we don't care what they think. There's, an, there's a sense of, you know, we're sick of being the puppet controlled by the puppet master. And there is that almost the element of rebelling against the cringe in that. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the very fact that, it, that Henry is forced into, um, uh, you know, kind of throwing the Pope out. Um, yeah. Ab- abandoning the English Church's loyalty to the papacy is a, an index of England's marginal status, because the reason that the Pope can't grant the divorce to Henry is because um, the Pope has been captured by Charles V, the Emperor. Yes, um, and um, he, uh, Catherine of Aragon, is his aunt. Yeah. Um, so Henry doesn't register in the balance. Um, yeah, it's just not as important, is he? It's not he's, as important. I mean, it's not as important. Um, we've got a Henry VIII podcast to come, and Henry's always he's always trying to be on at centre stage with the King of <laughs> yes. France and the yes. and the Emperor, but he's very much clearly the third man in that kind yes. of relationship, he's, which clearly irritates him. I always wonder whether that's why he became so fat because he's just desperate to kind of <laughs> yes. push them off stage, <laughs> and make yes. himself look bigger, so yeah. more important than he was. Yeah. But I think um, I mean that does then then recalibrate, obviously. England's relationship, not just with with the Roman Church, but with Italian culture yeah. generally. Uh, Italy remains very much the kind of sun around which people of culture revolve. And I suppose the classic example of that would be Shakespeare, loads of whose plays are set yeah. in Italy. Well, I was bringing, I really wanted to ask about Shakespeare, because there is a theory, isn't there? Um, of An outlandish theory, it seems to me, that Shakespeare... well. It's one of these many conspiracy theories that the Shakespearean plays were not written by a man called William Shakespeare, but there's one theory that they were written by an Italian or a man of Italian extraction called John Florio. Are you aware of this? I wasn't. Tell me more. Um, oh, well, I was hoping you were aware of it. Um, that's basically <laughs> all I know. <laughs> well, I, I I know that there's um, a, a quite widely held theory that Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare has these missing years. Yes. And nobody quite knows where he went. And the... The familiarity that he shows with Italy. Uh, yes, well, exactly. That, this is the Florio thing that he knows. Um, Shakespeare knows too much about Italy. So um, Tom, I don't Thomas Cromwell does Crom, to, Thomas yeah. Cromwell, who you know lo- launches the whole Reformation in England, he had been he in had Italy. Been in Italy, yeah, he um, had been in Italy. So that's that's kind of quite a tried and tested path. And the idea and the theory is is that maybe Shakespeare went there as a mercenary or a teacher or whatever. But Shakespeare's geography um, is dodgy, isn't it? Because isn't it in the, it's in the Winter's Tale where somebody gets a ship to Vienna or something like that um, from Bohemia. From Bohemia, that's it. From Bohemia, but I don't think anyone's suggesting he went to Bohemia. Um, oh. But perhaps he. But, but you know, but you think of all the plays. All the plays that are set in Venice and Rome, um, yeah. and of course uh, Verona. 
Um, yeah, Romeo and Juliet. Um, yeah. I suppose. Now, so what does that mean to those people who are seeing it, do you think, at the sort of turn of the, the end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th century, when they're seeing this place set in Italy? Does that denote, I mean, that presumably doesn't denote, even though Italy is the, the, the home of the Pope and Rome is the sort of headquarters of the Antichrist in, in people's minds, presumably that they have no problem with seeing plays set in Italy with a no. sympathetic Italian character. And that must still denote to them high culture, sophistication, yes. lovely weather, citrus fruits. All yes, these and even if you think about it, um, there's a very sympathetic por- portrait of the friar who weds Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Um, he's, he's not a kind of particular object of abuse in the play. Yeah, he's not a um, Jesuit sort of conspirator. Yeah, so, so maybe, I mean, maybe that reflects uh, sympathy for Catholicism. Lots of people in Shakespeare's yeah. part, lots of people have argued that. Um, you know, it's, it's so difficult to know because Shakespeare's character is so opaque. Yes. But, yeah. um, but if you compare that with um, other playwrights who are doing portrayals of Italy at the same time, they're much kind of, they're much more propagandistic. Um, so you have all these Jacobean tragedies where you only have to, to have a cardinal and he's, you know, fancying his sister and poisoning people and <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing, poisoning Bibles and kissing skulls <laughs> and things like that. Um, and, and in those plays, Italy is, is portrayed as an absolute kind of sump of popery, depravity, murder, rape, incest, every sin possibly going is there, is, <laughs> is, is, is taking part. Um, and I think that, that 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 does kind of mark a a sea change in England's relationship to Italy, which is perhaps summed up by Milton, kind of devout Protestant, yeah, Puritan, going to Italy. And it, Milton is hugely, profoundly influenced by Italian culture. You know, he speaks Italian fluently. He's absolutely versed in in the works of the great Italian poet, Mr. Red Dante, and yes, absolutely. All that stuff. But but he, he goes to Italy on a kind of cultural pilgrimage. Obviously, not a, a pilgrimage of the kind that um, you know his English forebears had, because he's Puritan. But he he one person he does go to see supposedly is Galileo, and okay, he 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 references it in Paradise Lost, his great poem, um, and he says Galileo is a great man. Uh, you know, he has opened up untold worlds, unglimpsed worlds. Um, and it's Milton really who articulates what will become the great myth that Galileo has been silenced and tortured by the, the Inquisition, by all the evil apparatus of the of the Roman church. Hold on, is that a myth? It, it's a myth. It's a myth to the degree that um, Galileo is not tortured. He is not imprisoned. Right. Um, he, he, he must. But he was put under enormous pressure, though, wasn't he? He's put under pressure. Um, but I think we should do an episode on Galileo because yes, the whole Tom story Holland is so describing fascinating. The, describing this pressure in a very blasé way, I have to say. <laughs> what I would say is that that Milton bigs up the repressive character of the Roman Church yeah. in a way that will have an enduring influence on the way that Protestants see the catholic church's relationship to astronomy a, to the sciences that's how I and in the long the and that then in the long run bleeds into the way that say atheists or secularists yeah. like to cast it yeah it, it's basically a myth. it's a protestant myth philip pullman um, is a great i mean so philip pullman is the heir of milton in this regard isn't he well obviously completely. paradise lost plays an yes. enormous part in philip pullman's and so so philip pullman i imagine is not a I mean, I don't know if he's a listener to this podcast. Let's assume not. He, um, he's he's not a great Italian on a file in that sense. He would probably sign up to the sort of black legend. I mean, it's, black legend is Spain, isn't it? But it's kind of equivalent. 
I, the, the, the black legend that, that casts the Roman church as a kind of sump of, of repressiveness and, um, ignorance and bigotry and intolerance is, I mean, you know, there are elements of truth in it, but it gets massively amplified by yeah. English Protestants. And it has then, because, you know, England and, and America have culturally been Protestant, it's kind of bled into post-Christian attitudes. You know, hostility towards Christianity, which is often a kind of yeah anti-Catholicism, really. Yeah. Um, now the producer is telling us we have to go for a break, but, but I think I... that's the perfect moment, Dominic, because I think this has been very much a game of two halves, and the well, first half Italy's let... dominated, but I think there are, there's hope for England to come back in the second half. Okay, jolly good. I was just about to say, and I'll just put it in um, because it fits here just before we go for the break. So Italy are winning, but um, this is just a sort of footnote to that. We had a listener called Mikey who said, "If you don't, are you going to mention Mary of Modena?" in your podcast if you don't i won't tell you exactly what he said but he would say that he would soil himself in a warming pan um so uh, we have to mention her and i think this is the moment so mary modern was the wife of um james ii wasn't she and she gave birth unexpectedly to a healthy baby boy just before the glorious revolution well this is the question or was a baby smuggled in in a warming pan hence mikey's threat well when james ii was kicked out where did he go and where well where did the jacobites end up. I mean, the headquarters of Jacobitism was Rome, actually. And that sort of cemented, I think, Rome's um, reputation as the sort of anti-England par excellence, don't you think? So yeah. the old pretender, the young pretender, and then the last Jacobite, who I think was Henry the, was he Henry the Ninth, as they called him, who was cardinal. And there's a monument to them still in Rome, a monument that presumably all sort of Protestant Englishmen, when they go on their trudging round St. Peter's, they regard with horror because um, I think it's somewhere in St. Peter's. So so that's just, to me, is the sort of tipping point, because that's the point at which Rome is associated with with losers, the Jacobites. And obviously at that point, the engines of kind of English and then British capitalism begin to roar, and, and, and there's a sense of Britain kind of overtaking Italy. And hopefully we will make a second half comeback based on all that. So we'll see you after the break. Hello, welcome back to the second half of England against Italy. As I said in the first half, I think this is going to be very much a game of two halves. First half, it was all Italy, all over the English. But I think now there's every chance that England can do a comeback. Um, Dominic, I, I'm afraid I completely, I completely hogged that first half. No, no, it's quite right. I think um, everybody enjoyed it. Well, I, I think it anyway. But the second half, you've got lots of good stuff, and it all seems I, to be food based. Well, there's a lot about pasta and biscuits yeah <laughs> yes. um, i think that's what people have come to this this podcast for to be honest i don't know they've come about that they don't give a damn about the pope they just want the no. bloody biscuits right so let's start i think we should start with the grand tour because yep. the grand tour as a lot of people will know is a sort of 18th century phenomenon late late 17th early 18th century phenomenon of people going rich young aristocrats and whatnot would kind of go on this great expedition almost like a colossal gap year um, they'd go to France, then they'd sometimes go to Switzerland, and they'd always end up in Italy. I mean, Italy was always the place. And and I guess this really reinforces what you were saying in the first half about the importance of Rome and the legacy of the Roman Empire, because that's what they're going to see, isn't it? They're going to see Roman ruins. I mean, Gibbon, Edward Gibbon, who, t- you know, I, I worship as this sort of titanic um, historian. A wise, sceptical historian. Exactly. Like an owl. Yeah, like you couldn't have no i couldn't have put it better myself um so gibbon goes in 1763 to 4 and there's this famous you know he has these famous lines 
Um, I shall, I can neither forget nor express the strong emotions which agitated my mind as I first approached and entered the eternal city and all this stuff. And then he says, you know, to, to be in the forum, the place where Romulus was, where Cicero spoke, where Caesar fell, and he, and he's, he's almost drunk with excitement. And it's then, it was a little bit later that he's famously sitting among the ruins of the Capitol. Um, while the friars are singing vespers in the temple of Jupiter. And he has the idea of writing his decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So you get this sort of sense of it, how in the 18th century Rome still, some of the anti-Catholicism has has faded, but you still have this sense of the this sort of colossal sway. And that's kind of widespread, I think, across. So Dr. Johnson says, a man who hasn't been to Italy is is always conscious of an inferiority because he hasn't seen what what a man ought to see. That's true. That's true. But it's also, it's ruins, isn't it? It is ruins. So, 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 so the English lords and people like Gibbon and, and so on are, are going to see ruins. Yeah. And they're well, the ones with the cash. They're the ones with the big car- chariot carriages. And basically they, they're there to, to, to gawp at, you know, the, the remnants of, of Italian greatness and to bring back loot. Well, they do, but they also go for, some of them go for more sordid reasons, more, more bodily reasons, Tom, because you know what Boswell wrote, typical line from Boswell's yeah, diaries imagine. of his time I in can Italy? imagine. Yesterday morning with her, pulled up petticoat and showed whole knees. I was touched with her goodness, all other liberties exquisite. Yeah, but, but, but <laughs> That's Boswell, exactly how was, expect. Ha- He's Scottish though, isn't he? So maybe that doesn't really count. But also, he was hardly remiss in no, that's undertaking true. similar research in London. So all these guys go for the Grand Tour, right? And this is going to bring me to the what I really want to talk about, which is macaroni. So all these people go for the Grand Tour. Now, macaroni was known in England because the first recipe for macaroni cheese comes from, I think, the very beginning of the 14th century in a book about curry. It's <laughs> <That's a recipe for, laughs> so confusing. That's a recipe for macaroni cheese. But clearly macaroni had been forgotten in the intervening period because all these people, they get a taste for macaroni when they're in Italy and then they come back and they bring back not just their enthusiasm for macaroni, but their um, but Italian style dress. I mean, there are some absolutely hilarious quotations. So they start that they, they they say I, I don't know whether it sort of starts as a saying among themselves. Sort of these sort of trustafarian gap year veterans. They say, "Oh, you're looking very macaroni today, darling," or whatever, and then people start to mock them. So the, this is the Oxford Magazine in 1770. There is indeed a kind of animal, neither male nor female, a thing of the neuter gender, lately started up among us. It is called a macaroni. It talks without meaning. It smiles without pleasantry. It eats without appetite. It rides without exercise. It wenches without passion. So there's a sort of sense of effeminacy. And basically what's happening is these are guys who've come back with Italian fashions. So they're wearing multicolored stockings very sort of tight britches. Their coats are considered too short. Massive wigs. And wigs that, I mean, the claim is that these wigs were half the size of a man. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. You see, and they're actually going to be in... carried by servants. Yeah. <laughs> and then they'd have a little hat on them on yeah. the top. And you could only get the hat off by with a sword because it was so high up. And also these... they um, they didn't eat roast beef, which is always well, a bad sign. Well, the, yeah. I mean, they weren't very, they were seen as un-British. So the Universal Magazine two years after that, 1772, said, uh, you may know a macaroni when you come near him by his essence and his scented waters, and you will discover him by seeing everything about him most extravagantly outré. He attends at auctions where he picks up the names of painters and vomits them forth at all occasions. That's that's a, a I mean that kind of runs through, doesn't it? So Italian yeah. dancing masters, uh, absolutely, of absolute hilarity. And, and I think well, and you think of room with a view, with all with Sissel. So I think all of those things are picking up all this macaroni stuff. So I think Dickens and Co. Absolutely picking up. Actually, Dominic, wouldn't you say 
um the um the influence of um all the opera in italia 90 yeah in creating a kind of slightly effeminate feminizing class, football uh, yeah, yeah i think there's a lot of truth in that and then the arrival of italian players and of, indeed of italian football on channel 4 in the 1990s was part of a sort of gentrification of yeah a de-proletarian de-masculine proletarianization of football because there's a kind of there's a kind of ambivalence there because on the one hand um there is a sense of um italy as um you know mafiosi diving unlike our brave british our brave english <laughs> yes. strikers <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> um we would never do that so so there is that but then of course there is also the sense of of you know this macaroni tradition well the macaroni the other thing about the macaroni thing is there's obviously a whole lot of stuff about sexuality and gender kind of bound up with that about Go on. so so there's somebody wrote a, 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 a journal of a, a macaroni um and it, and it reads like that i can't read it all it is very funny rise at 11 survey my sweet this is a diary this is what they do in the day survey my sweet face in the glass and pick my teeth for half an hour breakfast at 12 uh, saunter to the park and stare at the women for the reputation of having a taste for them so he's only doing it for the reputation not because he wants to stare at the women and then he goes has goes to the coffee house goes to the theater um, nine o'clock, take a woman of the town to the Shakespeare, treat her with a bottle of champagne and leave her as I found her. And that, and the sort of damning thing there is that he's leaving her as he found her. He's not sort of debauching her because the assumption, you know, the implication is because he's gay and all of this stuff is just for show. So that's kind of, there is that always this stuff about Italian effeminacy, which runs through, I mean, I think it's probably gone now. But it's no one would look at Giorgio Chiellini, the captain of Italy, and say he's an effeminate man. He's not. He looks like a kind of Roman centurion from central casting. But um, but that obviously runs through from, I say, the 18th century to the mid 20th to mods, when mods were sometimes dissed by rockers as effeminate. And a bit Italianate. Yeah, obviously Italianate because they wore yeah. Italian fashions and they had their yeah. scooters and they went to coffee bars and things. Exactly. So there's that. so there's this kind of association with with um, youth culture. Yeah, fashion. Yeah, um, gender bending. <laughs> Absolutely, cutting edge. So cutting edge, and so the um, the uh, Yankee Doodle went to town. Wow! Yes, so, this is so fascinating. That's, so that's a joke about Americans being being backward, being backward and trying to be trying yes. to be macaronis and failing. So this is a really weird thing, and our American listeners will find this weird because they think of Yankee Doodle Dandy as the as a patriotic song as it's become, but it began as an insult that British redcoats would sing during the American War of Independence to mock the Americans. So the first, I think, is it the first verse? I don't know. Yankee Doodle went to town, a riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. It's basically right. exactly that. You know, they're putting a feather in their cap because they think it's going to make them look like a dandy. But because they want to have Because all actually the... you need a massive wig. Yeah, because they're just okay. sort of hayseeds. Exactly so, that. So, um, so you get that tradition going through with Byron being the you know the famous example of a lord who goes to Italy who who writes about its its you know as Gibbon had done about its yeah. ruins about its beauty about um, but also m- mourning the fact that it is uh, it's basically prostrate and humiliated that it's yeah, under the thumb of, of, under of the, the thumb, church yeah. it's under the thumb of the Austrians it's fragmented there's no prospect of it recovering its former greatness but then i guess over the 19th century gradually it does yeah and, and the key this man is, here this is where the biscuits come in this the key man here is garibaldi um now i'll come to well i maybe we should start with the biscuit everybody uh, to me a garibaldi is a very very fine biscuit i know people so, often have these world cups of biscuits on 
Twitter and so on. Well, cuts are a ridiculous idea. Yeah, it's so Never tawdry and shallow, isn't it? Um, yes. Anyway, they have, um, they have a what? Garibaldi never does as well in these competitions as I think it should, because I think it's an It's a bit boring. No, I think the Garibaldi is a marvellous biscuit. Anyway, so, listen, Dominic. Do you know when the Garibaldi was invented, Tom? Um, 1865. Oh, God, you've clearly swatted up on it. It's 1861. Was it? It's 1861. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing it was named after God. Garibaldi. It's such a shame the listeners can't see just how childishly <laughs> pleased you are that you always got it right. <laughs> so, yes, um, Garibaldi, you know, most people will va- have some vague awareness that he's a guy in a red shirt and he um, is key in the unification of Italy. Um, so he was quite famous in, in England before the unification of Italy because he was famous for his role in – he tried to lead a revolution in 1848 – um, and then he'd gone around kind of trying to raise funds. So he'd gone to America, to, for example. And actually, when he was going to America in 1854, he stopped in Newcastle. Um, so Dan Jackson is a, who, a friend of the podcast who's always tweeting us things that he knows far more about than we do. We'll almost they always have that, a Newcastle link. They always have a Newcastle link, and he will definitely know more about this than us. Garibaldi arrives in March 1854, and he gives speeches to all these working men for Italian unification, for liberty and so on. And this is precisely the kind of cause that's very popular with kind of, you know, um, working men's groups and sort of liberal-minded people in the middle of the 19th century. You know, let's build Italy, throw off the the shackles of it, these old empires and so on. He's given a golden sword bought by public donation by the people of Newcastle, um, inscribed with the words, presented to General Garibaldi by the people of Tyneside, Friends of European Freedom, April 1854. God, I can so, imagine Dan purring as he oh, yeah, wrote to you about that. Exactly. So then um, six years later, Garibaldi has his most famous sort of moment in history when he leads what's called the, the expedition of Emile, the Thousand, to land in Sicily. And he's going to attack the kingdom of the two Sicilies, which is run by the Bourbons. Um, Hence, more biscuits. Also a biscuit, but but later... Uh, also a very good biscuit, I think, but not as good as a Garibaldi. Um, now, there's, he has huge support in, in England for this because, again, he's a liberal hero, sort of hero of liberty and stuff. So tens of thousands of pounds are donated to help his expedition. The Times War correspondent goes with him all the way or every sort of step of the way. But crucially, the Royal Navy supports um, Garibaldi's landings um, in Sicily. So they send HMS Hannibal, Hannibal, ironically, of all, of all the ships mm-hmm. to, to send, HMS Hannibal and two gunboats, Argus and Intrepid, and they basically make it possible for him to land. The Bourbon ships, which aren't as good as ours, can't sort of do anything to stop him. Garibaldi lands in Sicily, he captures Sicily, then he goes over to Italy and he sort of marches up towards Naples and, and sets in train this great sort of it's a great sort of series of, frankly, to me, incomprehensible and baffling. But it does it, it does events. ultimately involve a march on Rome, right? Yeah, they march on Rome eventually. So exactly, and the Pope is hostile to this. Yeah, the Pope, the Papacy is so, against papal troops fight against the Kingdom of Piedmont, which is the Garibaldi's big ally in the sort of. And so, how is this playing with kind of anti-Catholic opinion back in England? I think it's all. I mean, uh, incredibly well. I mean, the anti-Catholic people, but people generally absolutely love this. So. By 1864, when Garibaldi's had a lot of success and he comes back to London, there is, I mean, he's met by, I think, half a million people in London mm. on the streets, which is unbelievable when you think in the, in the context. He's a freedom fighter. He's, he's a freedom fighter. Anti Catholic. Exactly. He's everything that he stays at the, he stays at the place called Stafford House. And he's so popular that the servants um, make a fortune by, by bottling the soap suds from his wash basin. 
God's like the Beatles. And selling them to it's exactly that. So but even all the great and the good ones to see him as well, Lord Palmerston and people like that. There is a massive trade. Garibaldi is one of the most memorialized men of the nineteenth century in, in knickknacks, in merchandise. So there's dolls and there's plates and there's tankers and there's ceramics and there's postcards because there's photos of him. He plants a tree in Tennyson's garden. Um, so basically, he's a celebrity. Um, he's a so basically, star. the establishment of it uh, of, of the Italian of, of Italy is uh, it's down to us. It's because of the navy and because of down to us and Garibaldi. And there's a football link because uh, he goes and gives a speech, I think, in in. Nottingham or Nottinghamshire or the Summer Nottinghamshire connection, which means that when people start playing as Nottingham Forest Football Club, they wear red tasseled hats called Garibaldi right. hats. And then later on, when they decide that hats are not suitable for football, they wear red shirts instead in honour of Garibaldi. So there's a football link. There are still tons of roads all across Britain called Garibaldi Street or Garibaldi Road. There are at least eight pubs, Garibaldi pubs, and they're and the biscuit. So Garibaldi leaves this incredible legacy um, and the Bourbons can't really compete. They also have a biscuit, but their biscuit isn't launched until the 19... Well, the biscuit is launched early, but they don't add their name to it until the 1930s, by which time it is far too, too late because late. Italy is under different management, as we all know, in the 1930s. I think it's an index of my essentially reactionary character that I do actually prefer Bourbons. Yeah, well, that's a Garibaldi, old, isn't it? Yeah, you like, have, like you, you, as a Bourbon, you have learned nothing and forgotten no. nothing, or yeah. whatever yeah. it is. I can't remember what it is. I, but you, you, as the kind of instinctive revolutionary, so um, yeah, your red-blooded Marxism, exactly, um, exactly. But uh, you, you mentioned football, yeah. Um, of course, the, the the famous detail is that uh, AC Milan does it not begin as a cricket club? I think it does. It does exactly. Well, that's so why it's, it's called Milan kind of, rather than Milano. Yes. So it's founded by English. It's very much, um, a, you know, rather like Augustine coming to Canterbury and spreading Christianity. Yeah. English people go to Milan, set up a cricket club, set up a football club. Disappointingly, the Italians aren't as keen on cricket as they no. are on football. But also, I believe Juventus, <laughs> Juventus, which is by far the most popular Italian team, supported all across Italy, not just in Turin. Um, Juve, Juventus got their black and white colours from Notts County. So the Nottingham, I mean, this is basically a Nottinghamshire-Italy relations podcast rather than a... So it really is the case that when, when Italy play at Wembley, they will be coming home. They will be coming home. Very good. Um, but Tom, so at this point, Italy is thought of very well in, 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 in British circles, high and low. But then in the 20th century, I think it's fair to say that by and large, yes. people had very low opinion of the Italians yes. politically. So um, in the First World War, Italy lines up, as it were, on the other side of the draw at the beginning. So they're supposed to be in an alliance with um, uh, with with Germany and with Austria. And basically, about a year into the war, they they completely break that alliance, stab their allies in the back, and decide they're going to attack Austria. And they 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 do that in the most. I mean, it's very hard to. Um, I don't want to sound like I'm biased, but it's very hard to defend their behaviour here because they do it in a very Weasley way. They basically say to Britain and France, what will you give us to join you? We want land. We want Austrian territory. And all the British sort of politicians, they want Italy on side. But Asquith, for example, he described it as that most voracious, slippery and perfidious power. It's it's important to bring Italy in at once. Greedy and slippery as she is, says. Um, Churchill described Italy as the harlot of Europe. Lloyd George 
They are the most contemptible nation. Well, Jackie Fisher, who was the uh, first Sea Lord, he said, the Italians are mere organ grinders. There will be no use whatsoever. Could I join in with some abuse of Italy? Do. Yeah. Okay. So First World War, obviously, they were on our side. Yeah. Second World War, they... incredibly bloody Second World War, they weren't. They were against us. They weren't. Uh, And led by Mussolini, of course. Also entered late, as they had in the First World War. Yep. Yep. Um, I've been sent this by um, Wavell. Yeah. Well, he didn't send it himself, did he? Uh, he said he said this himself, but I no, was... No, he didn't send it to you. You said... I've no, no, sent no. This, this, was sent by, this was sent by my friend um, Daisy Christodoulou, who will be coming on and talking about exams, history of exams, uh, to coincide with... <laughs> that uh, sounds more like a threat. A-level and GCSE <laughs> results. Um, so, Wavell... Uh, yeah. This is amazing. This is fabulous. We can name the nations who started the fire. Germany and Japan. Stupid, ill-bred children who have never been properly brought up or learnt good international manners. Their silly little girlfriend, Italy, joined them in hopes of some cheap fun and now finds herself being taken for a ride with two really bad boys. And that is not going to be cheap for her or much fun. I mean, that's that's, that's the kind of commentary that I think we want from. But from the, the, the commentators on uh, on Sunday <laughs> night. But that was so common. I mean, that was I mean, I suppose because of the weight of the sort of post macaroni stuff. It was almost impossible for, yeah. the, for the British in, in World War II to think of the Italians in any other way. So there's an, a, a description of one British officer who describes the Italians heading from Libya into Egypt. He says it, they looked as if they're on their way to a birthday party. <laughs> and, <laughs> and also all the jokes about Italian tanks only having a reverse. Well, this is the thing. So when yeah. we capture Tobruk and so on in 1941, um, there's some wonderful descriptions from the Australian journalist Alan Moorhead, who wrote a brilliant book about the war in the desert. And he says, basically, when I got to the Italian camp, I found it full of linen bedsheets, lace-trimmed uniforms, tasseled belts, peacock hats. And then later on, there's a big box or something. They look in it and they say, jars of bottled cherries, tins of ham, anchovies and bread. Because the Italians are packed for a picnic. Well, you remember the... um... The, the episode we did on games, on war games, and there's oh, yeah. some massive war game about the war in Italy. That's right. Where yes, the, every round you have to have enough fuel to boil up the water for the <laughs> Italian army's pasta. Yeah. So that, 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 that kind of mockery of um, Italian war martial efforts carries on right into the, into the present day. But it, it is fair to say, is it not, Dominic? Yes. That the invasion of Italy in the Second World War is incredibly brutal, incredibly Incredi- bloody. Yes, yes. And actually, the, the British come to have a huge admiration and respect for the partisans. I think they do, yes. And I mean, actually, they're slightly frightened of them, to be honest. I th- but I, feel, I also think it's really fascinating, Tom, how after the war, um, there is still a lot of bad blood about towards the Germans and the Japanese, and there's the classic thing of people who won't buy a German or a Japanese car. But nobody ever says that about Vespa scooters or about Fiat's or about Italian coffee. or Because fact, I think... The Italians are felt to have contributed to their own liberation. I think it's partly that, but I also think it's partly that Wavell quote that you said earlier on, that the Italians have been led astray, um, that they, mm, yes, there's this maybe. sort of slightly yeah. patronising attitude. I mean, I will say one thing. So in case people are listening to it and thinking, oh, this is very sort of jingoistic and they're laughing at Italians, there is another element to the Italian story in the war which is actually very sobering, which is what happens to the Italians in Britain. Um, so there's a lot of Italians, particularly in Scotland, and they are pretty atrociously treated. So people go and smash the windows of their shops. I mean, some of them are Italians who'd fought for us in the First World War in, in our army. Yeah. And um, their their shops are all smashed. They're looted. Uh, one shop owner in, I think, Edinburgh is shot dead. Um, uh, by, and the crowds kind of riot and they beat people up and stuff. 
Um, things like, I mean, just little things like another biscuit. Vitti's, the biscuit factory, they, they sacked all their Italian staff out of hand. Um, and Churchill was basically, he's asked, what should we do about the Italians? And he famously says, collar the lot. So every Italian in Britain is rounded up. Hundreds of them are put into camps. Well, thousands of them. Um, hundreds are put on a ship called the Arandora Star. One, there were 1,200 people, mostly Italians, but Germans as well. Some of them refugees. They're sent off to um, camps in Canada, but they're torpedoed by a German U-boat along the way. And about 800 people are killed. So these are Italian waiters, mm-hmm. people who, I mean, literally organ grinders or people who work in ice cream shops and so on, all the classic things that Italians did before the war. 800 of them die. The rest are just put on another ship and then sent to Australia. When they get to Australia, they're kind of beaten up and they're, all their possessions are stolen from them. So it's a really, it's a it really story. sad and mo- sort of shameful chapter. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's not all kind of, you know, fun and games. This, I mean, there are sort of sad and dark chapters to the story as well. But then, and then post-war, I, th- I mean, relations have, have been pretty, pretty good, good. I think been jolly. I mean, good. The, the Italians surpass us, don't they? This Il Surpasso. Yes, they, is, they, well, they have this tremendous economic growth. I mean, it's economic miracle in the 1950s. So we, we've 60s. spent, you know, three centuries sneering at them yeah. for being economically backward, and then they zoom ahead of us. But what's really remarkable, actually, is is the legacy. So you talked right at the beginning about Rome and Rome being the centre and Rome being more sophisticated and more civilised. So in the periods that I've written about, let's say the 1950s and 1960s, people absolutely had that view of Italian culture. Italian films, Fellini and Antonioni and so on, they were more highbrow. Uh, Italian fashion was the thing, you know, Italian shoes, Italian trousers. As we said, mods, you know, went out of their way to look like Italians. But also, Dominic, I mean, also the the enduring appeal of the stuff that enthused, you know, Chaucer and perhaps Shakespeare. Italian poetry and, yeah. Well, Tuscany is a kind of shorthand, isn't it, for... Oh yes, upper, is, upper middle class elite tastes. Yeah, I mean, if you're a Guardian columnist, by law, you have to go on holiday. To That's the joke, isn't it? I mean, that, yeah. that is that is the kind of that, that is absolutely still the shorthand. So yes, just as in the 14th century, in the 21st century, Tuscany, you yeah, know, it it, it conjures up everything. That, how much of that, that is kind of aspirational is, is to do with um, the legacy of Rome, Tom? I, th- I don't think that has much to do with the legacy of Rome. Don't you? I think no, it, I think it, I think I think it's to do with. Um, with the beauty of the landscape, with the beauty of the art, I think it's much more a Renaissance thing. I don't. I think that's. I think if you say to a child, for example, Rome, lots of people love going to Rome. Yeah, but it's flop. But no, but 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 you know, Tuscany, as in short. Well, Tuscany from specifically. Hampstead, okay, Tuscany specifically is Florence sort of, and the, the the Guardian reader's fantasy. I agree, that's kind of a Renaissance thing. But people go to Pompeii, don't they? And they, I mean, I, I the first time I went to Naples or indeed to Rome, there was this real sense of electric excitement you know these are real these are the real places uh, of course absolutely i mean yes of course the rome is a huge part of the appeal if you're if you're a tourist but i think the the lifestyle thing yeah i th- i think it's more the, renaissance the italian you know the dolce vita i know it's set in in rome yeah. so that torpedoes my argument but i, th- I think <laughs> that the sense of italian fashion of, of italian style is I think you kind of rooted in the Renaissance to plug your own book Rubicon, no, well, which has the most ha- fantastic descriptions of Roman villas, yes, and of but excess they've gone. and the luxury on the Bay of Naples. But they've gone. Oh. Naples. I mean, Naples is a wonderful city. It's my favourite city in Italy. Yeah, but it's it's not a place you'd go for burning piles of rubbish. The high end. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I go for. People, people setting rubbish on fire because the mafia <laughs> refused to collect it. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, but that's what that's what makes Naples such a, a thrilling place to visit. It does. But it's it it's does. not um it's not what it was in the days of of the late Republic. When I went to Naples, the uh, coffee machine and uh B and B exploded um in a very disturbing way. That's the main well. Naples also, of course, has um a shrine to Maradona. It does. I've seen that shrine to Maradona. Yes, and I of course the home of the people with the holy hair. <laughs> does he have holy hair? There's a there's a single hair I think oh, from yeah, from Maradona's head. Well, full of cocaine. When um, <laughs> on a football related, when when um, Argentina played Italy in Naples in the 1990 World Cup, Maradona tried to tried to incite the people of Naples against the Italian national because he said, "You're Neapolitans, you're not Italians." And that actually, we haven't really talked about that at all about whether Italy is artificial. So yeah. there was a great book a few years ago by David Gilmore, and he basically said Italy is a fake country. It should have been. It shouldn't really exist as one country. I mean, the, the trouble is, you could say that about so many. I'm sure Italians would say the same about Britain. Well, exactly, so. they would. Exactly, <laughs> they would. I mean, um, they, which is they, why they're playing say. England, not Britain. Yes. So um, we're just rambling now, and I think it's time we for are. prediction. Um, I think that Italy will win, based on Score. my viewing of the two semi-finals. I think two-one. Two-one. Yes, I think Italy will win. I think they will win. Um, I think they'll win one-nil. Um, I think England will huff and puff, and uh, they, the Italians are too wily in defence. What I will also say about the Italian team yeah. is this sweep of history we've been doing from Roman times up to the present day is that they all look like figures from Italian history. Do you know, I was I was thinking, if he doesn't say that, I will say it. Because so we have said that about the England team, but I think that's even truer. unbelievably gratifying, I find, because I'm a man who loves and trades in um, national stereotypes. So I find it incredibly gratifying when a national team look as they should, when they just look like a casting agency yeah. has supplied some Italians. And that's exactly every man of them they just look they couldn't be anybody else they couldn't be france they couldn't be germany i find all my um you know my 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 jacobean protestantism kicking in yeah and i kind of imagine them going off to poison nunneries and things <laughs> they have that look they even did a thing so i don't know if you saw but before their penalty shootout with spain Italian I did. captain yes, Chiellini. I did. I did. And he was kind of doing this fake <laughs> punching and embracing of the Spanish captain. And the Spanish captain, Jordi <laughs> no, so, Alba, just looked so, so smaller. Yeah, he was small and he just yes. looked utterly distraught and kind of intim- yes. not intimidated. I mean, that's the wrong word, but he was just put out that this sort of Italian leaning over him, putting his arms around him, yeah. all of this stuff. I mean, they're crafty, aren't they? They've had thousands of years. Yes. And, um, and I, I suspect that they will notch up another victory. Uh, yeah, well, but we will see. Anyway, uh, I've very much enjoyed the Euros um, this time round, particularly for the opportunity it's provided, Dominic, to talk to you about uh, England's relations with uh, the various countries that we have played. Uh, so I'm very sad to see it end, but I'm also absolutely thrilled that England have made it this far, not just for patriotic reasons, but because um, we've been given the chance to talk about Italy as well as yes. Denmark, Ukraine and Germany. So um Thank you to the England team. <laughs> Thank you uh, who, to listening to us. Um, and hopefully we will um, we'll be back maybe for the World Cup. Who knows? All right. Splendid. See you all next time. Good luck, England. It's coming home. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access ad-free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at restishistorypod.com that's restishistorypod.com 
Hi, Restless History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe?